pretty well, I guess, if we're galloping to get to it. Please turn your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, on the heels of the application of Jesus' temptation in 4, 1 through 11, we're moving to the next piece, the next chunk of Revelation in the book of Matthew, the setup, the prelude to the Sermon on the Mount. Our passage is kind of a connector, kind of a a transitional passage to get to that message between verses 12 and verse 25. And in the New American Standard, it says... Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and, having, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, those who were sitting in the land And shadow of death upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men immediately. They left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria. They brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, And he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The transitional piece from the suffering of temptation in the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit and tempted by the devil in Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, to setting up for the platform of the kingdom. And there is a design that we can discern when we read the book of Matthew and we watch it closely. And we've talked about this. We'll review it just very briefly. There's a design Matthew has. In that which we just read, he skips over time in the ministry of Jesus from his baptism and public inauguration into ministry into going into Galilee. He skips a year of our Lord's Judean ministry described in the other gospels. And he does it for a reason. His purpose in Matthew apparently is to make disciples of Jewish Christians. He is writing to a Jewish Christian readership. It's very evident, especially with the fulfillment language. Because the way he uses the fulfillment language would not prove to any unbeliever that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. The way he uses, he shows continuity with God's design and God's revelation for those already aligned with that revelation. Matthew is not written to tell you how to come to Christ. It's written for people who, by the witness of disciples of Jesus, have already come to Christ and trusted in him. And now what? What do we do? How shall we then live? 
and it is to be a disciple of our Savior and get on mission with the Savior. This is evident, as I've said, because as we look at the outline of Matthew, as we look to the outline of Matthew, is it showing it? I got I to gotta learn to use this pulpit. As we look to this outline, it really is structured around his messages. And I want to reinforce this and impress this on you. The long sermons in Matthew, it's the only gospel that does this. There are echoes of these statements in discourses scattered through the other gospels. There's a sermon on the plain that sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount in Luke. But Luke is not structured like Matthew around the messages. So if you want to hear the voice of Jesus as closely as possible, with ears that are really listening for the timbre of his voice, it's the book of Matthew with the reported speeches. And that doesn't mean that Matthew's more gospel or more, more Holy Spirit inspired word for word than any other written thing in the scriptures. It's just that that's, that's the special honor of Matthew is that you're hearing the master teacher teach more in Matthew than anywhere else in the Bible. And I think as I reflect on this, this is probably why I am constantly drawn to the gospel of Matthew. When you read the red letter sections in Matthew, if you don't find conviction as a believer empowered by the Holy Spirit walking in this life, if you don't find conviction for how you should live, you have misread Matthew. You've misunderstood your life. You've misunderstood your priorities. And Matthew as the discipleship primer, will realign those things for you. The long sermons are the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, the discipleship discourse in chapter 10, the, the uh, opposition to, to Jesus in, um, and his denouncement in the, the parables of the kingdom or the kingdom parables in chapter 13, the response of the king with this, to his disciples in the, in the extended discourse in chapter 17 and 18, and then the famous Olivet Discourse of chapters 24 and 25. Uh, these are words you might have heard before, the Olivet Discourse. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah, they got the discourses. And um, th- there's, there's another discourse we talk about a lot, you know, the, in John. John chapters uh, 13 through 17, the seed doctrine, the seed teaching that it, all of the New Testament teaching grows out of is the last night of Jesus' instruction of his disciples. And we all know the upper room discourse is John chapters 13 through 17 uh, as we look at that last training of believers only in the room. And so the idea that John is written as a, the gospel of John is written as a as an prim- as a, as a evangelistic tract to save people, and that's its only purpose or its primary purpose that's a little bit lacking. I know 2031 says these have been written, but listen to the whole book. 13 through 17 is only to believers. It's only for believers. And unbelievers have no access to the truth therein because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And yes, they need to believe in Christ, and that's a big message in especially the Gospel of John. But anyway, I don't want to digress too much on the Gospels. I would point out that all the Gospels conclude with the crucifixion, resurrection, and glory of the Son, of, of, the, of the Christ. Whatever the other objectives the Gospel is doing, we always end with the event, the event of the Gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And all the Gospels conclude with His ascension, with His glorification up to the right hand of the Father. And in those glorification discourses, as he is about to leave, his last words in the Gospels are always telling the reader, there is work to do in his absence. There is work to do, and you get the Holy Spirit to do it in Luke. There is work to do. Here is the standard and my expectation in Matthew 28. 
There's work to do individual ministers in John 21. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. The making of disciples is the order of the day in which we live. And if we watch Matthew closely, we'll learn how to do it. We'll learn what is our attitude. In terms of this transitional portion of Matthew where he's going in, in this narrative stuff to lead up to the gospel, uh, I'm sorry, to the Sermon on the Mount, in, in the gospel. In terms of this narrative portion, Jesus, in the, for the first time in Matthew, receives fame. People are starting to notice and they're starting to honor him and glorify him because of his miracles. But you and I have already read Matthew 3, and this is the first thing I want to, this may be the last thing. Some of you are about to check out. It's, it's about time uh, for you to think about something else. Listen to that music in your head. Um, dun, 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 dun. Matthew 3 already has the highest and most, the most wonderful thing that can ever be said about anyone ever by the one person in the audience that matters. Matthew 3 says it all, and it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about Jesus after what, what the Father says in Matthew 3. And what does God say from heaven in Matthew 3? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you want to feel good about yourself? Well, stop worrying about it. Do you want to have the approbation of people that matter? Do you want people to care about you that should care about you? Do you want to be thought of like you should be thought of? Do you want to look in the mirror and think of yourself as you ought to think? Well, guess what? If you use humans or even your own opinion of yourself as your standard, the one person that was ever worthy of praise and adulation was horribly, horribly treated, tortured, humiliated, debased. They jammed a crown of thorns on his head because he was the king. Ha, ha, ha. They tortured him with a symbol of rulership. They skinned him alive publicly. And he hung naked, or nearly, very nearly naked, between heaven and earth. No doubt in shock, physically, to die for your sins, but at the hand of wicked men. See, you can't follow Christ, and you can't adopt God's attitude about yourself and people, and get your opinion of yourself from yourself or people. What you are going for, what I'm going for is 2 Corinthians 5, what is said of Jesus here. Luke says it this way, he continued to grow in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. What does God think is the ultimate question of my life. What does God think? And what God thinks of Jesus is not what the world thinks. It's not the way the story ends. It is how the story, well, it is ultimately how it ends. But in, in the gospel of Matthew, the way men treat Christ is not how the father thinks of him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We have as our ambition, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have it as our ambition, whether in the body or absent from, from Christ, whether, it, whether present or absent, whether here on earth absent for Christ or in the presence of Christ in heaven, present with him. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. To be pleasing to him, that's our ambition. We want to be pleasing to him. And if you'll stop looking at what you think of yourself and just stop, that, that's, that, that'll be such a distraction. Stop looking what other people think of you and start thinking of what God wants and ask the question, what does he think? You'll have adopted the pattern of life as you walk by the Holy Spirit according to God's word that Jesus pioneered for you. Your life is lived toward God, not toward self, not towards others. Others are the way we live out 
what God wants. Mark's been teaching very, very magnificently in the New Testament, all the one another passages. That's all for God's sake. I concern myself for you because of God and his call on my life and my desire to please him. First and foremost, oh, but it makes me feel good to help. That's not what we're talking about. I'm glad it makes you feel good to help, but that's a secondary concern. It does feel great. It's when you get together with people and do volunteer work, it doesn't matter what you're doing so much as who you're with. The experience is fantastic. Even if they don't receive it, it's still fun because of you know, the, 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 the camaraderie, the experience of the thing. There's, there's joy in lots of the experiences of life. But the reason we do it is not for camaraderie and not for the other person likes us or, or even to satisfy them. We serve Christ because we're seeking to please him. Now, pastor, you're preaching against the grace of God because we already know that in Christ I'm already made accepted in the beloved. I already know that I am sufficient for God to approve of me because of the work of Christ, and therefore I don't have to seek to please him. The problem with that kind of theological reasoning is it doesn't benefit from New Testament exegesis. In your position in Christ, you are pleasing to the Father. In your practice of walking worthy of your calling, you're supposed to have it as your ambition to be pleasing to him. Yes, walk in a personal relationship with God like your Savior did, and therefore we're looking for that well done at the judgment seat of Christ when we will hear God's assessment of us. He says of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What will be his remark about you? Because of what Jesus did, I'm pleased with this person. Because of what I was able in the Spirit of God for my glory, what I was able to do through him is pleasing in an experiential way. And that's the walk, the sanctified life, the spiritual growth, the Christian life of works that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in. Well, uh, the people are starting to see Jesus as uh, someone to flock to. By the time you get to the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of people that are thronging him to hear, and they're called disciples. You have the, the narrow view of disciples of the ones he's called that are the, we call them the twelve. But then there's also the others that are with them that are not part of that inner circle, but they are called disciples in the Gospels. They're his students. Disciple mathetes means student. I said it to a young person the other day. I said, don't you understand that you're supposed to disciple up? What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. Because the theme was you don't have to listen to all this Bible teaching. You could just have a relationship with God. I said, well, the problem with that is that God calls us to disciple up. Well, what does that mean? I made up words. I'm like, well... Jesus said, make disciples. Do you know what a disciple is? I guess not. A disciple means a student. Now, wait, wait. You said Jesus wants you to make students? I was like, yes, you're starting to understand. We're all supposed to be getting with what he said and pondering it and living it and growing in it and and proclaiming it. We're his students. And that's the idea. Well, when Jesus receives fame in the adulation of the crowd... He doesn't care. Why not? Lots of reasons. He knows what's in man. We read one place. He knows not to trust himself to man. That's not a sufficient source for you to find your self-worth. The, the tragedy of the has-been uh, in Hollywood is a known thing out there. The person that's no, no longer getting, getting calls, the agent can't get them jobs anymore. And they used to be a thing, and they used to be a headliner, and now, you know, not... The world's moved on. We've got new 24-year-olds or new 19-year-olds to put in front of the screen. And so you're kind of done. You're sidelined. 
Tragic. Don't people remember who I was? <laughs> who cares? Fame is a lie. And this is a really important thought in the life of Jesus. He's famous for his works, for his miraculous works, but his works are testifying to his word and the word abides with us today. And this is what's interesting. If you take the word of Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again, that by God's grace does a miraculous work greater than any miracle he performed on earth because it gives you his eternal life and you will rise with him in a resurrection body to rule with him forever. That's way better than rising from the dead in a physical body that's gonna die again. See, the word is the issue, and that's why Matthew and all the discourses. So Jesus relocates in 412 to Capernaum, and this is important. The the point that that Matthew makes is that they have, the governing authorities have taken John into custody. Herod has imprisoned John. Now, we have in other gospels more background information about what happened with John and how the government got involved. But in Matthew, let's just stick to the script here in Matthew. Notice that the kingdoms of the earth were offered to Jesus if he would just bow down and worship Satan. We've dealt with the interface of the world's kingdoms under Satan and the coming of Christ to the world to rule as the king. And there is a strong opposition between the kingdoms of the earth and the coming messianic kingdom. That's Psalm 2. And you see it here. The forerunner has done his job, and in God's providence, he has identified the Messiah and for the nation. He has anointed him by the baptism in the Jordan, and therefore he has been proven and tested by, by the wilderness temptation that he's fit to be the king under the Father. He will rule righteously. He will do whatever the Father requires of him, and that is the definition of the Messiah of Israel. That's what he must be and do. And so the forerunner's mission has run its course. As John says elsewhere, he must increase and I must decrease. John was famous with his message, and it was only preaching, no miracles for John, just a message, and it made him famous. To what end? Everybody had a poster of John the Baptist up. You know, you wouldn't want to buy the cologne, but, uh, but he was famous for being a, a real prophet. He hadn't had a prophet in 400 years. But what's the purpose of his notoriety? It was to point to Jesus. That's his whole purpose in life. Is that a sufficient purpose for life? Poor John. His only purpose was to point, point out Jesus and glorify God. What an incredible privilege and honor that that be your call, that your, your requirement in life. I mean, John gets beheaded by the state at the whim of a teenager. A little teenage mean girl gets him beheaded for her mother's sake because he said something nasty about her. Uh, mother. That's the story of how the state interfaces with the people of the kingdom. John comes with the, as the herald of the king and they kill him. And this is what they did to all the prophets of God. Jesus says, what prophet came to you that you didn't, your, your fathers didn't kill? That's John chapter 8. You're, you're from your father the devil. He's the murderer and you're murderers. And, and so the kingdoms of the earth reject the king and they've rejected John. And it's not time for Jesus to be down in Judea in the hot spot where they're going to kill him eventually. It's not his time. It's his time to go and make disciples. 
and proclaim the kingdom as he does here and to give the platform for the kingdom which is what we have in John chapter 5 through 7. So this leads up to that in John's design. Sorry, Matthew in Matthew's design. So he leaves Judea because of um, because of the rejection of John. And then and we have a story of him entering Nazareth in the synagogue. And you know the story. He says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they reject him. You're the, you're the carpenter's boy. I mean, you're his son. We don't really know who your daddy is. And uh, he says, no prophet is, is without honor except in his hometown. But John, Matthew doesn't talk about that. He just he moves from Nazareth, where it was his hometown originally that he grew up in. And he set, came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And then we have this message quoting Isaiah chapter 9, which is a messianic passage, saying, look, in the life of Jesus, he did show up as a light in this area. In 418 through 22, we have not only his relocation to Capernaum, but then being in Galilee up in this region, up in the north, he calls his Galilean disciples who end up being uh, some of the most important leaders in the church, in the, in the early church. Now, we don't have the church yet because the Holy Spirit hasn't been given yet. And that's, that's John chapter 7, uh, verse, 20, th- verse 38, I believe. But we do have the calling of the important leadership that will, in the power of the Holy Spirit, be the foundation of the church. Uh, in, in terms of being of the apostles and, and prophets of the New Testament mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2 with Jesus as the cornerstone. And this is Peter and Andrew and James and John. And I want you to know that there's a different story of Jesus' first encounter with Andrew and Peter. And there's a different story than the way Matthew tells it of the first encounter with John. But, but this is not the first time they've met. This is when he calls them and they follow him and leave it behind. And that's an interesting difference. There's no contradiction in the Gospels. It's just that the way Matthew is presenting this, it's a primer for discipleship. If the Lord Jesus shows up physically to you and says, I'd like you to change occupations. Okay, Lord, anything you want. You sure? Yes, anything. Don't even tell me. It's like my kids ask me, Dad, can you tell me yes to something before I ask you? With Jesus, I will. I'll say yes no matter what, right? I want you to change occupations. Okay, okay. This, this fish job, it's, it's briny, it's salt life, but okay, whatever you want. I want you to be one of my inner circle that follows me, learns my stuff, and then shares it. Jesus, I thought you were going to shift me to a different occupation, but what you're telling me is to come be with you, and now my life's work is just whatever you say and like share it with other people like the miss what you heard from your father you're giving to us and you want us to give it to others and join that mission that's way better than a new job that's a that's life with you now the point in the discipleship conversation is that you who love jesus who know jesus as your savior who've never seen him you don't know what he looks like he doesn't look like the italian guy on the chosen whatever wherever that guy's from That guy's a good-looking guy. He doesn't look like any of the white guys in the 60s and 70s on the cross either, and he doesn't look like Jim Caviezel. (laughs) Now, he may look similar because he's a human. Eyes in the front, there's a nose, 
Jewish face. But we don't know what his face looks like because it's unique. It's his. And we will see it, his resurrected body, his resurrected face. We will see him and know him face to face forever and ever and ever. And now we don't. And it's by faith, not by sight. And that's the challenge and struggle of the time in which we live. And we thank God for the Holy Spirit and his word. We're in anticipation. We're not there. You can't strain at the tortilla and the burn patterns on the tortilla tells you that's what Jesus, you can't do that. I'm sorry. Tortillas are delicious. What we're saying is that this person that you have a relationship with, if he came and said, come here, what would you say no? What would stop you from going? How would you not go if you know him as you do? Now, these guys don't really know him. Jesus has done a miracle in Peter's life already. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a wicked man. But, how, but, but that's who he is. And, and so now you've been recruited. And he says, you got the job. We didn't even ask for the job. Well, you got it. We didn't even apply. I want you. I want you to do this job. What holds you back from saying anything you want every moment of my life? That's the discipleship question. What about your life holds you back from being, thinking, saying, doing anything the Lord Jesus Christ wants at any moment? What's the, what's the hang up? I've got to go bury my father. Nope. But we've got a fishing business. I mean, Lord, let me set it up for sale. We'll sell the business and then give the money to the poor. I don't care. I own everything. He's the heir of all things. He doesn't need you to help him with his, with your, sell your fishing business, right? He wants you and he wants you now. Let's go. Now, is anybody here, if Jesus was physically present, knowing what you know about him, knowing him as you do now, is there anybody here that wouldn't say, Right away, Lord, done. I don't have to fish anymore. Now we've got to do some hard stuff. We've got to fish for men. Who would not just jump on that right away? Now, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's the reality of the truth of God's word that God has brought to you through the teaching of God's word, through your pondering it, through your reading it, through your time in prayer. You have a real relationship with God, and to you, this is the most obvious decision that you should make. And let me throw it back on us one more time. Why don't we? What stops me in the day-by-day life of being his disciple, his student, from saying, yes, I'm doing what you want. Yes, I'm following you. We get choked out with the distractions of the world. We get hung up on many different concerns. Our body is a distraction because it's deteriorating. Young people, trust me, it'll happen even to you. We have all of these challenges and hardships and heartaches, and there are so many options to avoid the reality and to try to numb what amounts to pain. That we just, I'm busy. I got other things. And we're not thinking eternally, and that's what you've assembled today. We're getting an eternal perspective. I'm not worried about fame. God may use it. God may use notoriety like he did for his son, but it won't be its own end. It's to proclaim the gospel. And there's nothing that I would, would rather do if I think about eternity, then be pleasing to God and disciple up and Lord, yes, whatever you have. 
It's not like a conversation we really need to have with him where the Lord says, all right, David, these are my objectives for your life. I want you to do the following things. It's not like a conversation to have with him, like a petulant you know, teenager that hadn't figured it out yet and say, well, Lord, I get your list, but you know, let me push back just a little bit on this list of priorities and say there are other things that you might want to think about and include. And the Lord's sitting there with omniscience and omnipotence and infinite love and perfect righteousness and saying, I knew you were going to say that. He does, okay? But it's absurd. Do you see what a fool that you would be to argue back to God and say, well, this would be a better use of my time or my life or my resources? And if you don't see it that way, you don't, you don't really understand. If I don't see it that way, I don't really get it. I haven't been in the word. I don't really know who God is or who Christ is. But apparently, in 418 through 22, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they figured it out. And the way Matthew presents it, the king says, I need some, uh, need some entourage here. We just got promoted. Now, the last thing I want to close together with the, the first thing is we talked about fame. And now we talked about, about would you go if he called you? Is there anybody more famous than Peter and John? <laughs> Think about it. Well, these guys weren't looking for fame. They weren't looking for notoriety. They were fishermen. And they didn't do what they did because of the approbation of men. They did it because they're following Christ. Look what, he, what he's done. He has exalted and promoted them. If you and I follow Peter and John and Andrew and James, we follow their example the promise is that just like we follow Christ's example, humbling ourselves before God, we will be exalted with him, glorified eternally. That's our destiny. You really can relax. Christianity should be relaxed about the things the world is worried about. We want significance. We want importance. We want to matter. We matter to God. Focus there. Focus your energy there. That's where Matthew 6 is going to summarize for us. In 4, 23 through 25, Jesus, as we said, gains this notoriety because he does the works of the kingdom. He does the works of the kingdom. And I want to, I'll bring out something uh, that's fun in this section when we get there. He says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, word first, right? And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people healing every kind of disease and, uh, and every kind of sickness among the people. So then the news spread throughout all Syria. That's to the Gentiles, and they brought him all who were ill. And then look, listen to the specificity of Matthew. Various diseases and pains, summary, demoniacs. He separates people from physical ailment, with physical ailment, from people possessed by demons, being, being demonized or oppressed by the presence of a demon in the person. I don't know how they could differentiate that because we read in the scriptures that demon-possessed people often have physiological effects. But notice what the Word of God says in the pen of Matthew. People that were diseased and sick, people that were demon-possessed, demoniacs, and then listen to the anti-evolutionary bias, the biblical bias Epileptics, epileptics, people today that, are, uh, that, that think the Bible is, is legend will say, you see those primitives back there, they would have blamed epilepsy on demons. Matthew doesn't. He says, people that were ill with any kind of disease, demoniacs, people demon-possessed, and then people suffering from epilepsy. 
He doesn't say why they're having convulsions. And certainly, the medical prowess back then. You don't want to go to those doctors if you can help it, right? Luke was a great physician, but I wouldn't want him to be my physician unless he went to some more advanced training. But, <laughs> but, but they know the difference between a demon-possessed person and an epileptic. Ever notice that when you're reading Matthew? Now, I didn't say it. The Holy Spirit in the pen of Matthew said it. But that's, I believe that's the nature. Of the, you can't play this, they didn't know what they were doing business. There was demon possession and there was ailment. And people sometimes demon possessed had ailments. And there's a difference in terms of the cause. Paralytics and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea, and even from beyond the Jordan. Now, see, that is the most wonderful setup for the words of the kingdom. Jesus went around saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand. In 417, he took up the exact quote of John the Baptist. John is imprisoned. Jesus begins his earthly ministry with the same message as John, identifying with that same offer to Israel and not to the Gentiles, but to Israel of the kingdom. Now we have some prophetic fulfillment of the Gentiles coming to Messiah with the Syrian Gentiles hearing this message and responding as well. But, but overwhelmingly in the life ministry of Jesus, he's only speaking to Israel. When a Gentile comes, he has to say, wait a second. And there's a little conversation there because he's offering the kingdom to Israel. And Israel's going to be the, 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 the kingdom that is over all the other kingdoms and all the nations are going to stream into Jerusalem, into Israel to worship Messiah. That's, that's the prophecies. That's Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 4 and other places, Isaiah 9. And so what we're saying is that Jesus has gone throughout Galilee with this message and work, this word and work of the kingdom. And he's even gotten attention. He didn't go to Syria, but he's got attention from the people coming in up in the north, coming into Israel from the Gentiles to hear this message. And now there's people all over the whole gamut. There's a, there's a big noise that's kind of arisen. And now it's back. People down in Judea and Jerusalem are are coming out to hear this. That is your setup for the kingdom platform. For the Sermon on the Mount, that is what he, the king, expects from his people who are his subjects in his kingdom. And it is the teaching of the king that is before the works that testify that teaching. The healing ministries of Jesus were not the goal. They were in support of the goal. The goal was that the word of God would come to the hearts of the people and they would be transformed by that preaching. The, the signs were meant to testify to that message. And the one who said that message had the sign and the apostles did too. The prophets of the early church at times did as well. And they had that message word for word from God. And they said that message and they had a miracle that would authenticate it. And that's what you see consistently. Jesus is not just out there. He's not doctors without borders just showing up. Hey, everybody, um, I can heal your diseases. He's telling the people to repent for the kingdoms at hand. And that kingdom is the removal of the curse of nature. Rise and walk. That kingdom means that the disease goes away. You no longer have disease. He comes with kingdom power. That kingdom will not be characterized by Satan and his fallen angels terrorizing people. Demons come out. He is doing the works of the kingdom because he's proclaiming the word of the kingdom. And those works are testifying to that message. 
And that's the problem with the, the mystical and the sensational and the emotionalistic in Christendom. And it's been a problem with us since the second century. The first uh, one to purvey this continuationism that the point is the flashy stuff and we're going to jump around. Not like House of Pain. Um, <laughs> that's a 90s reference. All right. <clears throat> the the idea of, of getting out of control of ourselves, and that's when God really is, is in control, when we don't have any self-control, even though the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That idea of mysticism and emotionalism that characterizes uh, the char- char- charismatic movement and has really only for about 100 years in this culture, 120 years, 1901 or so, um, that idea of that emotionalistic, uh, it misses the point of the miracles Jesus did. I'm not telling you something new. I'm telling you something Jesus said 2,000 years ago. We're exploring reverently in the fear of the Lord. I need to be reverent. Reverently, we're approaching God's word that's already been said. This is the apostle Matthew of Jesus Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to say these words. What I'm saying about it isn't on par of authority with those things. You don't need a miracle testifying to my words. We already had the miracle that testified to what Matthew is saying, what Jesus said when he did that miracle in the first century. I told you about the second century. Um, one of the tragedies of church history is a guy named Tertullian. Tertullian's one of the greatest lexicographers or word coiners ever in all world history. He gave us the word Trinitas, where we say Trinity. He gave us the word persona for the persons of the Trinity. He is so helpful in so many ways, and yet there was this movement of, of continuationism and, and extreme mysticism and, and, and sensationalism sweeping through that real Christianity is beside itself by a guy named Montanus. And Montanus was denounced in the second century as a heretic by the people that were the pastors and elders and the people with the word that were, uh, that were studying the scriptures and they were, they were there the whole time. The early church rejected Montanism as a heresy. Tertullian the Great got swept up into Montanism and he died in that movement. And it's tragic. And it's, it's always been the same problem. It is that I don't really know enough unless I feel something super special squishy. I really don't, telling me that Jesus loves me and that God has a plan for me and that I'm an heir with God, with Christ and God and my, my purpose is an eternal purpose to rule with him. So now I've got righteousness applied to me and I need to live it out according to his word and the power of his spirit in my day-by-day choices in a consistent filling ministry of the spirit where I'm actually characterized by the word of Christ, richly dwelling with me. You know, the, the biblical spiritual life of the New Testament, that's not good enough. I've got to mm, feel something. Go get a massage. See, Christianity has never been primarily how I feel, and my feelings can be deceptive, and I can feel contrary to what God said. Ever have that moment where you're brought to yourself and you feel like sin, but you know you shouldn't because you're supposed to serve God, and you don't feel like serving God, you feel like sin? It's a problem we all face. And Paul describes it to the Corinthians that you haven't yet shed blood. You haven't, you haven't resisted the point of shedding blood yet. Uh, how's that for some feelings? Right? I'm not saying we shouldn't rejoice. There are feelings that God has for us. This is not the focus. It's not our primary objective. And that's why, back to Matthew. Matthew tells you what Jesus said. 
You take what Jesus said and you believe it. You think about it. You reflect on it. You meditate on it. You pray about it. You absorb it. You metabolize it. You take what God said on faith. You absorb a new way of thinking about life, about everything else. You submit yourself to the creator who's speaking in the flesh of man here in Matthew 5 through 7. And you say, God's way, not my way. God, you have your will, not my will be done. You bring your kingdom on earth so that your will can be done on earth as it's in heaven. And you start thinking God's way. And you stop worrying about what the world, the Gentiles know you need all these things. God knows you need these things. Everybody's struggling for, to make a buck, but you can't serve wealth. Well, I've got to feed the family. You let God feed your family. You seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. It doesn't mean you don't go to work. We work harder than everyone else. But you do it for Christ. You do it in his mission. You do it on his agenda. You don't break his expectations to feed the family. That's the Sermon on the Mount. There's a righteousness that doesn't work with the legalistic righteousness of the Pharisees. There's a righteous conduct that comports with the character of God, and it starts in the hearts of men, not in their hands. That's the Sermon on the Mount. See, if we take these truths, will we have feelings that go with them? Absolutely, but do they start off as feelings? If it started as a feeling, it wouldn't be written in chapter and verse. It wouldn't be in, in, in sentences that can be diagrammed. Boy, I get emotional about diagramming sentences. Some of you know that's true. I'll diagram this right now. I'll do it. I'll pull up Logos. We'll pull up the diagram editor. I love diagram sentences. I mean, love it. I mean, not eros, but definitely philos, okay? Over diagramming sentences, definitely agape too. I mean, it's all there. I love it. I love it. I'll show you why, because I get clarity where before it was mush. And now I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm stabilized. I love it because of what it gets me. The point I'm trying to make for you is that God speaks to us in discernible, functional, effective language. And how I feel about what he says is really not nearly as important as what he means by what he says. And I obviously get exercised and emotional about hermeneutics. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If being a disciple of Jesus, if the Christian spiritual life was about how I felt, then he should have given me not a Bible. He should have given me a book that had a blister page. Every page was a blister page full of pills. That's a way more efficient way to get me to feel something. I, what's my daily reading? Uh, pills one and two on page 1506. Crick, crick, take my pill, get some coffee, take it, obviously take your medication with coffee. Get a drink of water and wait for the feelings to start. Oh, I love you, God. That feels good. Thank you for the feeling. Oh, I just love that feeling. Hey, when you feel good, thank God. He made you for that. He made you uh, with the ability to feel euphoria, to feel good. After a run, those of you who can, I'm not jealous, but it's nice for, you, nice for you to be able to run. When you get that feeling that the endorphins kick in, that you're actually doing some, some, some training, some improvement on your cardiovascular system, you get a, a little bit of euphoria. Thank God for it. He made you for that. That's a system that he put in, 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 in place. But that's not your life. That's a piece of life. It's dessert. Thank God for dessert. Don't live your life trying to make dessert the main course. And the scriptures are written so that you'll know them and think them. Well, I want to show you chapter 5 really quickly. That's what it looks like. 
That's chapter 5. There's a ton of stuff in chapter 5 just to kind of whet your appetite. You have a lot of reading to do, chapter 5 through 7, to think through. Chapter 5 is kind of the discourse on righteousness as revealed in the Mosaic Law that you wouldn't have known if you listened to the Pharisees. It is not Jesus changing the meaning of the Mosaic Law. It is Jesus interpreting it as intended. And he knows because he's Yahweh, who's present at the burning bush when he calls Moses, and he's present on Mount Sinai when he gives him the law. And the lawgiver, understand, as the Son of God, is saying what the law means. This is really important hermeneutics. What the rabbis argue about, about, well, we think this is what to do with the law on this particular thing. You can't fry an egg on the sidewalk uh, unless it accidentally falls on the Sabbath because then he didn't work to crack the egg but the, but the gravity, so then you can scoop it up. Or I mean, the, the ridiculous nitinoid stuff that happened over the centuries with the interpretation of the law is, is just blindness because the law is not about behavior. It's about attitude, and attitude is the fountain from which springs behavior. What defiles a man isn't what goes into his mouth, Jesus said, it's what comes out of it. There's a moral thing to this, and it's not just the pictures God gave. This animal's unclean, this animal's clean, you do the clean thing, you belong to me, I'm righteous. That's, a, that's kind of a, a way of showing the distinction between righteousness and unrighteousness, but there's not an inherent morality there. Don't kill, because I'm the creator of life, don't murder. That's an inherent morality that you get in the law. And Jesus is teaching that in his, the word of God and the righteousness passages. You have the beautiful portrait of someone that God approves of who is in this life with sin and yet in a relationship with God in the Beatitudes. Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Well, if you do, good news, you'll be filled. Are you persecuted for righteousness' sake? Rejoice and leap for joy because you get to inherit the kingdom. This is the way, that's uh, a portrait of who you want to be in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. He talks about powerfully what it means to be his disciple in 13 through 16. And then he talks about the necessary righteousness to belong to this kingdom. And there's a big debate. We're going to talk about this theological debate about what exactly the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees looks like. But understand, he's training. Matthew is writing this up for a Jewish Christian readership. You keep it in mind. Who is the audience of this writing inspired word by word by the Holy Spirit in the pen of Matthew? When Jesus gets into the, the, the features of the Mosaic Law, he starts with murder and goes to adultery, divorce, vows, lex talionis, the law of retaliation, and loving the neighbor. These are a sampling that sort of outline the major contours of the Mosaic law. God's covenant stipulations at Mount Sinai for national Israel to serve him in this, this bilateral covenant. Jesus is not saying because Matthew wrote this to the church, that the church is under the Mosaic law. In fact, when he says not one stroke will pass away until all these things have been fulfilled, he also is the one who fulfilled them. And that's part of what Matthew demonstrates when he gets to the death and burial resurrection of our Savior. 
What we are saying is that all Scripture is God-breathed. The Mosaic Law is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The word for Matthew chapter 5 is righteousness. And we don't have it unless God does something to us. And it's an inside-out portrait. And the legalism of the Pharisees won't do it. It's got to be something that God does, and that's the nature of the coming kingdom. So I'm very excited. I'm even emotional. I'm very excited about getting into the Sermon on the Mount with you. We walked through it slowly for several weeks, maybe months. I want to say in 2009. Uh, Yeah, I know. Ridiculous. Early on, um, I did a series on it, and um, I don't think I've changed my view on it from that time. Um, except that I learned, I know, I know I'm right better than I knew back then. I'm just, but, um, but we're going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount and I find so much of it so applicable when I am not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. I don't fit the portrait and the Beatitudes. I need to do something about that. Peter, we just read, Peter commands that we long for the pure milk of the word, like a newborn baby long for it. Do Do you obey that command? See, Everything in this passage is very convicting. Don't, don't love wealth. Don't serve wealth. He's talking about rich people when he says don't serve wealth, right? Matthew 6. You can't serve God and wealth. He's not talking about rich people. He's talking about people with multiple sailboats and residences and, you know, and, and tax, uh, uh, tax attorneys on retainer. And he's talking about really rich people that serve their wealth. He's not. He says that you don't need to worry about what you're going to eat, what you'll put on, what you'll have for shelter, because God takes care of you, and he's concerned for you. And so it's not about serving wealth for the rich. It's serving wealth for anyone, including our basic subsistence. I'm not trying to get rich. I'm just trying to live my life to make a buck to... No. God is the one that provides for you. You do your work for him and you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. See, that's very convicting. We can slide out of that mindset that I'm working for God and he's the one providing. That old farmer that says, okay, let's bow our heads. God, I guess we're supposed to say thank you for all the food we raised ourselves. Amen. Right? Is that arrogance? Oh, that's not how the farmers are. Anyway, the, the attitude of I, I provide for myself is easy to slide into. Farmer did a lot of work, but God caused the growth. God made the seed. God made the whole system. He gave them the ability to even farm them. You know, it, he's behind all of it. And so gratitude is always the order of the day. There's so much here. Are you going to build your house on sand or on the, on the rock? How are you going to found your life? See, everything in here is... Is, is a portrait of a righteous person in tune and fellowship with God. And, um, and in that sense, it's super convicting and super helpful as we get to know our Savior. So you guys get all warmed up and emotional by reading Matthew 5 through 7. We'll work on it uh, next Sunday, second hour. And uh, now let's t- turn our attention to the gospel. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then all the talk about God providing for your needs and you trusting in him and working for him as your master, it's really not relevant to you yet if you haven't trusted in Christ. 
You see, the audience that Jesus is speaking to are his disciples when he says these things. The people that Jesus calls to be his disciples, there's one thing that sets them apart from everyone else throughout the Gospels, and it sets you apart too. And it's what have you done with the claims of who Jesus is? Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world because he alone had no sin to deal with of his, of his own. You and I all have sin. Jesus had no sin. And that meant that he was eligible to be the lamb that could take your sins on himself and all the sacrifices of Israel regarding sin, all the patriarchal sacrifices from when the first sacrifice was conducted back in Genesis until the the sacrifices through the, the, the covenant arrangement in Israel, they all pointed to one spotless lamb. And, and John called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, we have sin. Jesus had no sin. And because he had no sin, he was eligible to stand in our place and suffer for our sins. None of his own, all of ours. And this is the transaction. This is the substitution. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him, is how Paul says it. See, he didn't have any sin of his own, and he took your sin on himself and was judged for it. And that sacrifice, that suffering of Jesus in your place for your sins is the way he provides eternal life for you. And what you have to do with that message of Jesus paying for your sins on the cross is trust in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. There is no other way to the Father except through Christ, and this is the reason we're sinful. There's not going to be God sweeping our sins under the rug and saying, well, I like you anyway. It's not how it works, and that's why Jesus had to come. It's really worse than we think, this problem of personal sin. But Jesus paid it all. He paid for your sins and mine on the cross. And the challenge of the gospel is have you trusted in him? Is his work on the cross sufficient to deal with your personal sin and separation from God? Said another way, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your savior? Do you believe that he died for your sins on the cross? Do you believe that you bring nothing that you didn't do anything to save yourself, that is only what Jesus alone did on the cross, is he truly your savior? As Francis Schaeffer said, have you cast yourself wholly on him in simple faith that he alone could pay for your sins? He could pay your sin debt and offer you eternal life through the resurrection. Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead because he wanted a relationship with you and that's the Father's heart. That's what God wants. For God so loved you, the world, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Have you trusted in Christ as your savior? This is the time. There is no no better time than right exactly now that Jesus is my savior, that he died for my sins and rose from the dead. For God demonstrates his own love toward you and toward me, toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the perfect, righteous, holy, godly, and good one. We're the sinful wretches that need a savior. And he came and did it. That's what Yeshua means. It means savior. He's our Savior, and we're not. Father, we thank you for eternal life that we have because of that message of Jesus, what he did on the cross. We thank you that he saved us by his grace, by your uh, kind intention from an eternal plan in which Jesus would be sacrificed in our place, and that we have this life because of his grace. Father, make us 
trophies, vessels of this grace. Make us not just uh, containers, but conduits of this grace to share it with others. Father, we don't want to be self-righteous. We don't want to be legalists. We don't want to be opposed to your agenda. We don't want to be Jonah. We don't want to be the Pharisees. We don't want to be the prodigal's older brother. We want to be like your son, gracious, open-hearted, offering the love that you share only through him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.